This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Wednesday the 1st of September 2021 and we've hit spring. We made it to spring. Yeah. Oh, How does it feel, Norman? It feels warm, basking in the sunlight of what seem like winter temperatures. But anyway, let's get on. <laughs> So yesterday we heard a, a, a new spring dawns and so does a kind of a different approach for Victoria. We heard yesterday that they they seem to be sort of stepping away from the idea of trying to get back to zero cases altogether and trying to find this fine balance between keeping cases manageable so that they don't explode out of control, but maybe not aggressively pursuing zero just while we wait for vaccination rates to get high enough that they start to really make a difference in the spread of the virus. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, Victoria and New South Wales are confronting a problem, which is that the communities are getting more and more resistance to, resistant to lockdown. Kids are doing it tougher, parents at home, with homeschooling, people um, suffering financially, and it's getting harder and harder to achieve lockdown. And with the Delta variant, we're not doing terribly with the uh, lockdown. You hear maybe 50% compliance, but actually that's made up of different numbers. The reality is a lot of people have got to be out on the road to do their essential work. And that takes that takes compliance with lockdown down a lot. So it's not like compliance in that people are just being willfully awful. It's just yeah, the fact that... There is some... There's Yeah, that's right. There is some of that, but there is essentially um, a degree of lack of adherence that is, is permitted. It's because the place has got to function. The problem is that last year, that roughly that level of compliance was pretty much okay to control last year's virus, but the Delta virus is not being controlled by that degree of lockdown. So you, you've either got to go really fierce, but the population really can't hold that. But we've got the cavalry this year coming to the rescue. It's just that they're... In the form of in the form people of, on horseback? Well, the people on horseback carrying vaccines. And <laughs> they've been on horseback for too long this year. But, you know, <laughs> they're leaving Fort Worth and they're heading for, you know, the Black Hills of Dakota, whatever it's called. Anybody, you know, there's only a limit to the, uh, the extent to which we can use this ideologically unsound very ideologically unsigned metaphor. But essentially, the cavalry is coming, which is vaccination. But the cavalry is coming at a slower rate than particularly in New South Wales, it's going up. So what do you do to move forward? Because rather than last year, where you've got to go for elimination of spread, because you've got nowhere else to go, this year, you've got to hold the fort until the cavalry arrive. And the cavalry arrive, in theory, when 80% of people of eligible people are covered. And hopefully that extends down to 12 to 15 year olds and they're covered too. And then you can start considering it wider. So how do you hold the fort? So Victoria today is going to announce how they're going to hold the fort at much lower numbers, vastly lower numbers than New South Wales. And you'll hear about that today and that will presumably be a more pragmatic approach towards lockdown to give some people a a degree of freedom that they are craving. In New South Wales, they've got a much more difficult task because they've got very high levels of the virus. They've got exponential growth and they've got stress on the hospital system. And according to some modelling, you're not necessarily going to see a peak until late September, early October, which is when the cavalry arrive in a sense in New South Wales to turn it enough. So it's starting to level off and go down. 
New South Wales has got less latitude in terms of lifting restrictions before then than than does Victoria because the numbers are so high. And the reason for that is contact tracing. So test, trace, isolate, quarantine, which the core of that is contact tracing. And contact tracing is holding the fort in New South Wales because if it wasn't there, we'd probably have been at 10,000 cases a day early August, increasing beyond that to very large numbers. And we're not at that level, and that's contact tracing, test trace, isolate, quarantine working, but it's not working to bend the curve. In Victoria, they've got the good fortune to have lower numbers, which at 70-odd cases a day is is where you're starting to really strain your contact tracing system. But if they can get the numbers down below 50 a day and far below that, then contact tracing is able to hold things much better in Victoria, which allows you a bit more latitude in terms of what you can allow people to do. And this really is all about a medium-term strategy where it's it's what we do until we have those vaccination rates high again. It's not what we're going to be doing indefinitely. No, although we have to get used to the idea that um, moving forward, there will be more cases, but hopefully the hospitalizations start to tail off. So if you look at the hospitalization rate and, and how it's tracking with the uh, surge in cases, particularly in New South Wales, the, the, the hospitalization rate's lock and step with the curve. It's going up at the same rate as the curve. So you can talk all you like about wanting to only talk about hospitalizations rather than cases, but they're pretty much on the same path in New South Wales. It's just that hospitalizations look a lot lower. That's what you want to see deviating towards the end of the year. So the reality of the outbreak here in Australia and moving forward is that more Australians are going to encounter COVID than have ever before. And a lot of Australians live with inflammatory diseases that have to do with the immune system, things like inflammatory bowel disease, arthritis, psoriasis. There's some new research out that sort of shows how SARS-CoV-2 interacts with these sorts of diseases. Yeah, it's a very reassuring piece of research. Um, We're talking about things here like uh, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, um, inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And people were very worried about these at the beginning of the pandemic, that in theory, because they affected the immune system, that COVID-19 would be much worse. For instance, with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, given that the COVID-19 virus could actually enter your body via your intestinal tract because you could swallow it, you can get much more severe problem than you would otherwise get because you've got inflamed bowels. So the, the news overall is good that um, with these conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, etc., and even Crohn's and, and osteocolitis, people did not seem to do worse. And in fact, they seem to do a bit better or have lower risk of severe disease when they followed a group of these people through. And it's partly because that many of the new drugs that uh, these people are on are what are called cytokine inhibitors. In other words, they inhibit the very chemicals that turn into a storm in COVID-19 in some people who get severe disease and get that huge problem of overproduction of these chemical messengers which drive the immune system and get this uh, inflammation throughout the body and blood vessels and the brain and different organs and really can lead to death. And so the very drugs that you're using to treat this help to inhibit that cytokine storm is the, is the theory there. There are a couple of treatments 
that uh, seem to worsen the outcomes for people um, with autoimmune disease, such as steroids. And um, there are some drugs which deplete cells called B cells. Um, They have potentially worse outcomes. And that's important information for specialists in this area to know so that if you've got a COVID pandemic running, you might want to avoid those drugs. But the vast majority of drugs that people are on these days seem to be quite good for you. So all good news, or mostly good news. Oh, that's good. And here's a question from Angel, who's asking, is there any research that's been done on having an mRNA vaccine first, followed by Astra, in terms of efficacy and safety? Yes, there is. So there are mixed-dose studies that have been done, which show that if you have Pfizer first with Astra second, you do get a good immune response, but it's not a spectacular one in terms of an extra benefit from having a mixed dose. The pattern that gives you the really enhanced benefit is Astra followed by mRNA, followed by particularly Pfizer. Um, I don't think Moderna has been quite as closely studied in mixed doses as has Pfizer. So you want it to have it the other way around. So that's in terms of producing antibodies. Safety, it does give you some more symptoms in the first two or three days, sore arm, feeling a bit lousy. But in terms of long-term safety, it seems to be perfectly safe. But in Australia, you just need to know that the Therapeutic Goods Administration has yet to approve mixing your doses. So it's a theoretical thing in Australia at the moment rather than practical. Well, that's all we've got time for on this podcast. But if you still want more to listen to, may we recommend the ABC's daily Paralympics podcast, You Little Ripper. It's got Paralympic legend Kurt Fernley and sports tragic Georgie Tunney reliving the heartwarming moments from the Tokyo Games and actually speaking to the athletes in Japan. And you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you tomorrow. See you then. <laughs> 